I still remember what it was like growing up in church. And, and I'm just curious, how many of you grew up in church like I did? Um, so you didn't have homes where you stayed in? You, you, I, just that was a trick question. But I spent many, many, many hours at church when I grew up. And I remember the smells as a little kid, the, the smells of, of coffee in the air mixed with the smell of donuts, fresh donuts uh, made downtown, picked up that morning by one of the volunteers. Oh, I remember that smell. In the summertime, I remember the smell of Kool-Aid because it was always the smell of vacation Bible school, if you ask me. Kool-Aid and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That's what I remember uh, church being the smells. I remember the smells of, of when my parents would come back from receiving the Lord's Supper and the smell of communion wine on their breath. And there's something about that as a kid, just those smells that connected me to the church. Not just smells, but sights. I remember the thing that, that I noticed as a kid was that nobody smiled. And, and it's kind of now, it's actually not funny. Like nobody smiled. Okay, and, and I realized early on as a kid, church was something you came to endure. It was boring, it was disengaging, it, it, and people looked mad. And, and I noticed even as they came back with communion wine on their breath, they looked mad. And as a kid, my impression was, well, church must be a place to be sad. A church must be a place where we come together with frowns on our faces. And I mean, as a kid, too, I put that together when I was witness to babies being baptized, and they'd be crying, and early on, my belief was, I understand I'm not going to cry in church because they'll baptize me, because that's a punishment. I mean, do you see how these things start to connect as a, as a kid, and along with the grumpiness that kind of went with that and people that seemed so upset. And I got just like, okay, well, God must be about making us miserable. That was my impression growing up. I, I remember, too, that I remember the first time I heard this story. I've shared it here before. That, you know, the, the little boy who's out in the lobby or the narthex with his mom, and there's this big plaque that has all these names listed on it, and, and he can't quite read what it is, he just knows her names. He says, Mommy, what, what are all those names on that plaque? And she describes, she says, well, these are all men and women who have died in the service. And his eyes got really big. He's like, the 8 o'clock service, the 9.30 service, or the 11 o'clock service, right? It's like, you know, as a kid, it sometimes connected with something you just had to endure. I, I remember, too, the, the things that were said, like, shh, we're in church, or, don't run, we're in church. And, and you can imagine my fear uh, when we had remodeled our, our sanctuary in our narthex area and, and I was running away from Marcus Moenkel and Pat Feltman one day with nobody looking and I slid down the brand new oak railing on my tummy and those were the days where you wore the big belt buckles. And I left this scratch all the way down the railing. I lived for years with the fear of God that my mom and dad would find out. And I finally, a few years ago, confessed it to the church in Lester Prairie, Minnesota, when I was invited there for an anniversary service to preach. I confessed, I put that scratch there. I had people really mad at me. <laughs> These are memories of the church. But there's other memories, too. I remember the hours that my mom would spend coming to serve funeral luncheons or serving with the Women's Guild or... Uh, my dad serving on council meetings. I, I remember all those things. I mean, it was a place you went to. It, church was a thing that you were 
you went to do, and, and, and often the connection was, and I remember missionaries come to talk, and they talk about going to foreign lands and reaching people for Jesus, and I thought to myself, man, we should get that guy to come to our town to tell people about Jesus in our neighborhood. There was no connection that maybe God was calling us to do that, because church was something we went to, not something we were, at least not in our thinking. You know, it may find it interesting, and maybe you learned this as a kid. From time to time, we bring this up. You know, here's the church, and do it with me. I know it's 8 o'clock. This will help you wake up a little more. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. And, you know, as a kid, that made a lot of sense because this is the church. This is the church. The church is a building, and, and the thing is, is, as I was able to read, and you start reading the scriptures, and you read that the word church shows up 114 times in the New Testament. That's a lot of times. And how many of those references to the church in the New Testament refer to a building? The answer is none of them. Not once does it refer to bricks and mortar. Not once does it refer to drywall. Not once does it refer to stained glass. Not once does it refer to an organ or to a hymnal or to a guitar. Not once. Not once does it refer to a certain way of dressing, all dressed up. Rather, it refers to God's people. And we're reminded that this is the church. I want to open the scripture with you today. As we begin this series and the reminders of what the church is, and, and the word used throughout the New Testament is this word, ecclesia, which literally means called out ones. The ones called out by God into the world to proclaim the goodness of Jesus. By definition, the church has never been a holy huddle just in a building. In fact, 300 years would go by before there would be any connection to church in a building at all. What does it look like to get back to the basics of what it means to be a church? Is that worthwhile, do you think? I think it is. Let's read what Matthew 16 has to say. We, we read this as the gospel reading today. We find out, it says, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Yes, his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And, and this is their response. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And often kind of confusing there, but there's some Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that would suggest some of the prophets would come back and be forerunners of the Messiah. And the thought was is that maybe Jesus is the Elijah or the Jeremiah proclaiming the kingdom and, and that he's a forerunner of the Messiah. And they're missing the point because he's actually the Messiah and, and they're telling what other people think. And that's when Jesus says, well, but what about you? And implied here, what about you who have been spending time with me and hearing from me firsthand and learning from me who I am? Who do you say that I am? And that's when, when Peter opens his mouth. And often as Peter would open his mouth and say the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong way, this time, he gets it right. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You are the promised, the anointed one, the one we've been longing for, the one who for hundreds and hundreds of years, our people have been waiting for the day when God would send his favor on us again. 
when God would bring forgiveness and grace, when God would usher in a new day that would change life as we know it. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Nothing boring about that, folks. Nothing dull, nothing to make us angry or upset or have a frown on our face. Now, this, this is something pretty good news here. God has come near to his people, and Peter declares it. He confesses it. And notice what Jesus says. Blessed are you, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you because you're brilliant or smart or strategic. <laughs> this wasn't revealed by flesh and blood, but rather by my Father in heaven. In other words, God has given you this revelation, Peter. To be able to declare, as Peter, or as Paul would later say, that no one can confess that Jesus is Lord apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. See, God was already working in, in Peter's life at this point to be able to confess this. This is God's work in his life. And then Jesus says this crazy thing. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Uh, you are Peter. Well, and, and many of you know this. The name Peter, Petros in Greek means rock. And, and, and often it's been misunderstood over the years to say, okay, so Jesus says, Peter, you are a rock. You are Peter. And, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. So the understanding is I'm going to build my church on this person named Peter. And, and so then ushers in the, uh, the pastoral office. And I'm going to build it on Peter, on the person of Peter. The problem is, is that's not actually what the text says. And this is where language becomes important. Jesus uses actually a different word for rock than Peter here. He changes the context of the, the, when he says, you are Peter, and then he changes it to a different rock. He says, and on this rock, and linguistically, and thank you for biblical scholars and, and biblical language scholars that can get into this a little deeper to understand this, that what Jesus is referring to linguistically is that rock that he's talking about isn't Peter. Rather, it's the confession that Peter just made. That's a whole different thing, isn't it? Can you understand that? I mean, uh, it's not about Peter. It's about his confession. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God who has come near to his people. This changes everything. And Jesus says on this rock, this confession I'm going to build my church. Did you catch that? Who's going to build the church? Peter? The disciples? Smart leaders? Smart church councils? No. Rather, who's going to build the church? Jesus is going to build his church through the confession of him. See, Jesus becomes the center of it all as he gathers people around that. And he even says that the gates of Hades are not going to prevail against this. You know, as a kid, I just picture that, you know, that the, the, the gates of Hades are like banging against the church walls, the building, and there's these gates of hell. That, like, that doesn't actually make any sense. When is the last time you saw churches or, or gates walking around the town and banging against other buildings? It doesn't work that way. Gates are are stable. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is saying that the church will go out and they're going to bang against the gates of hell and they're not going to prevail. 
Because the message, the rock of the confession of Jesus is stronger than evil in this broken world. It's stronger than Satan in this broken world. It is stronger than the brokenness of humanity. Because God has come to restore. God has come to bring grace and mercy and forgiveness to hurting people. Why would people keep that to himself, to themselves? Inside the walls of a building, in a holy huddle, it was never intended to be that way. I was thinking about this this summer, how, how often we put so much emphasis in people. And I mean this in this way. I know that there was a, when I was, uh, got into college, there was a pastor that I just deeply, deeply admired. And I, I became, uh, I started reading his books and uh, started coming, going to his conferences and just a huge, huge, huge church and um, impacting the lives of thousands and thousands. And what I appreciated, though he was not a Lutheran pastor, I appreciated his zeal for the gospel and, and his love for the word of God and, and his ability to teach that and share it and and, and, and mobilized people to go out and serve. And, and, and this church just grew and grew and grew. And, and in recent months, um, the word started getting out that over the last multiple decades, uh, women were coming forward sharing that this pastor had acted inappropriately with them. And at first, it was like, well, this can't be. There's no way. I mean, Here's a man who wrote books about integrity and, and who you are when no one's looking. And, 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 and I remember for me, as I'm hearing these reports, like, what's going on here? And, and as the reports started to, to surface in, in more and more testimonies and reputable sources of, of this is clearly not just a, an attempt to break down this pastor's reputation, this really has been going on and it's been painful and causing hurt and shame and brokenness. And now you have a church that's imploding. Thousands and thousands of people who are wondering what just happened here. And I know as I've read what people are saying, what the newspapers are saying in the Chicagoland area and, and saying, yeah, see, this will be the end of this, this church. And I've been reminded, no, it won't be. Because the church never was that one person. This is a terrible time. I'm not minimizing the brokenness that it's brought. Not at all. But the church was never that one person. And the church is going to figure that out. As they continue to turn to God's word for grace and forgiveness. As they continue to turn of what it means to be God's people set apart in this world. Not just on one person, but rather on the person of Jesus. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or if a church building burns down, that isn't the end of the church. No, that's, the church continues on because the church is people. Thankfully, God gives us a glimpse of what it looked like early on. Before we added all the other stuff that we think makes church, church. We, we find out when we read this in Acts chapter 2 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, those who are being saved. 
What a picture. I'm always amazed at what's not mentioned here. There's no mention of worship style. There's no mention of a pipe organ. There's no mention of how they dressed up with ties and beautiful dresses. There's no mention of that. You see what I'm getting at is sometimes we put those as this is what the church is and this is what you have to look like. There's no mention of that. That wasn't what was important then. No mention of screens. No mention of vestments on the pastor. There's no mention of any of these things. What what mattered was they were gathered around what? The the apostles teaching into the fellowship. Now, um, often been reminded of this that you know what what's going on there is you didn't have you weren't opening the bible because instead you'd say okay everyone let's turn to peter and you weren't opening a book to do that peter tell us what did jesus what did jesus tell you and and peter and the other disciples would share they'd speak because jesus had shared it with them and they passed this on well how they'd been discipled they shared the word of god and they met together Devoting themselves to this teaching, uh, to the fellowship, a koinonia, that phrase of just this intense sense of community and, and gathered in God's word and sacrament, as many scholars believe, to the breaking of bread and prayer. That, that reference of breaking bread here is in the context of sharing the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, and to time in prayer. And that, that phrase, everyone was filled with awe. And, and it just always struck me. And here I'm growing up in, in a church, and it wasn't this sense of awe. No, it was a sense of awe. And often that is our response. Awe. Yet in God's church, he fills his people with a sense of awe. And they were together. They had everything in common. It doesn't mean they all like golf or they all like bowling. No, it just meant that They were together. Jesus had prayed, I pray that you might be one so that the world would know. That's our basis of our mission, isn't it? One in Jesus reaching many. They were together in their doctrine. They were together in their belief. They were together in mission and focus and purpose. They even sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And what's implied there is they actually knew when someone was in need because they were sharing it with one another. There was a willingness to be vulnerable and to be open with one another, to share true community, not just a, hey, how you doing? I'm great, see you next week. But a depth of relationship to know how to best love one another. And it says every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts outside. Um, In Michigan, that would get rough in the wintertime. But they met together outside. Then they broke bread in their homes. They had table fellowship in the the sense of they didn't just get in the minivan and go through the drive-through together. No, they they did life together around a table where they were present to be available as families and as friends. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God. They enjoyed the favor of all of the people. And, And implied here in the text is not the favor of all the people in the church. Look at how great things are. No, it's not like that. The favor of all of the people in context is the favor of the community. And how would that be possible? If they were only huddling in little buildings or in big buildings, if they were only keeping to themselves, there would be no favor. But the favor was happening because they were interacting with their neighbors, their friends, their co-workers. They were sharing the confession of Jesus relationally wherever they were. And it was making an impact. 
So much so that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's no small thing. Every day, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, think about that. What does it mean to be the church today where the Lord continues to do that kind of thing? When there's almost 2,000 people part of this community known as St. John Lutheran Church and School. To be the church. And not a church that's about a building, but a church that's about community and people who are built on the confession, the rock of Jesus as our Savior and Lord, the one who redeems us from the gates of Hades and sets us free to live for him, to go and tell the amazing news of who we are as God's people and more importantly, who he is. as a God who loves the brokenhearted, those who are in painful circumstances and situations and, and feel like they're unloved by God and we have the opportunity and the privilege to go and tell them that God is closer than they think because he's come near among his people. A really amazing thing happened a few weeks ago. Uh, after worship at one of our services, a young lady uh, came up to me and I, I know that she's been worshiping with us for a couple months now. She's college age and, and, and she started worshiping here by herself. Had moved into the community, and, and I told her, I'm just amazed. This is such a huge step, you know, to come into a church facility, as it were, and do that for the first time. And, and, and I told her, I said, this summer, I, I like riding bikes, but I, I wanted to sign up for a group ride. It took me five weeks uh, to get, build up the courage to actually show up to ride my bike with a bunch of other people because I was nervous. I was like, well, what if I don't fit in? What if, what if I say the wrong thing? What if they don't like me? And I'm like, I'm pretty outgoing. Like, I'm going to go ride my bike with people, I'm afraid. How much more so to walk into a church for the first time of people? And, and, and she said, you know, i got to tell you, coming here has been amazing. And this particular day, she came up to me, and she, she had come up for communion, and she says, I want to tell you, I have not received communion since I was a kid. And I realized I'm finally home. And, and she wasn't referring to a building. She was referring to the way she said, people have welcomed me. People have loved me. I feel like I am home being here. You know, that's not about a location or an address. You realize that. That's about being the church. And may God have his way in us in these days as his church. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are building your church. And it's not just happening here, it's happening throughout the world as your people gather around your word and in your sacrament. And as you have your way in them to bring joy and peace. And as they don't keep it to themselves, but Lord Jesus, how could we not share it? And live it out. Lord Jesus, may we as your people grow in what it means to be your church. As we celebrate all the ways you're moving among us and all the things that are happening around us in these exciting days. May we not forget what it is to be your church. As we give thanks for you as our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen.